What's going on, Victory? How y'all doing today? Come on. Good to see every one of you here today. Listen, I'm so glad. Kendra and I are so glad to be back with you at home as last week. Uh, thank you for uh, giving us that grace to go and even serve the North Cross campus. But I heard y'all were lit in here last week. We felt y'all all the way in North Cross. And for those who don't know what that means, being lit, that means we're excited. <laughs> we're having a good time. And we just want to say thank you for being such a great part of Victory but I'm excited to be back home today because uh, I felt like Dorothy. I said, there's no place like home. And so give yourselves one more round of applause for being such a great and awesome congregation here in Midtown. Listen, uh, if you were here last week, you know that we kicked off our brand new series called The Golden Rule. And what we're doing in this series is that we're digging in and we're learning how to navigate what I would call probably the most elusive skill ever to be known to man, and that's how to deal with the pains of our people problems. As a matter of fact, I like to say it like this. It's us learning how to deal with people when they start peopling. Now, as soon as I said that, some of y'all know some people came to your mind that they've been peopling all week, and you're like, they need to hear this message. Bear, bear tight with me. We're going to get to it. But what I want to say today is that what we're doing is that we're really trying to see how do we deal with the person next to me. As a matter of fact, do this for me. Look to the person to your left and say, I'm finally going to learn how to deal with you today. <laughs> Some of y'all are a little too excited. You've been waiting on me to say that. Y'all really been ready for this. Well, we're going to jump into it because in this series, we're focusing on what I would call a popular ethic of reciprocity. This ethic of reciprocity is really found in pretty much all world religions. And what we're calling this is really like a social norm for how you deal with people, the social code of conduct of how you deal with your brother and your sister, how you deal with the people who you're going to engage with on a day-to-day -day basis. And what I know is that as Christians, we find this principle in the Bible in Matthew chapter 7. All year, if you've been following along with us, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. How many people have been blessed by our study of the Sermon on the Mount this year? Amen. A lot of you. We said that this study is found in chapters 5 through 7 of the Bible, and Jesus is talking to us. And what he's doing, he said over and over again that if you will practice these things that I'm teaching you, your life can be stormproof. Now, let me clarify that. What I'm not saying when your life is stormproof is that the weapons may not form, but I'm saying that they won't prosper. I'm saying that the storms will come, but you will be fortified. You will be steadfast, immovable. You will be able to be that person who is not just able to stand with this when the storms come, but you'll be able to thrive. And so as we've been navigating through this, uh, Jesus, he starts to wrap this sermon up. And I want to kind of give you a little key for those who study public speaking or you want to be a public speaker or you listen to a lot of public speakers. What a real good public speaker will do is right around the end of their message or their presentation or their speech, they will give you the key that you need to take away. And that's when you really need to do what? That's when you need to lean in. And so I'm giving you a little foreshadowing there, but I want to let you know that in chapter seven of this sermon, Jesus started to give us this key. And in Matthew chapter seven, verse 12, he said this, and we've been kind of talking about this. We started it last week, and I want you to read this with me. It's on the screen. Read this with me on three. One, Two, three. So in everything, do unto others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. That is what is known as the golden rule. And many of us have heard about that before. And last week, we kicked off this series 
actually by starting with verse 7, even though we've been going sequentially through the Sermon on the Mount. And what we said was that there's no way that you can grab, understand, and really walk out verses 1 through 6 until you get verses 7 through 11. Why did I say that? I said that because you need to understand when you get this, this whole story, especially in verses 7 through 11, is all about the good gift of grace from the Lord. And when we get this good gift of grace, what we're doing is that we are saying we're going to operate in this term that that Kendra actually has been talking about for a while called radical humility. Radical humility. And what radical humility is, is when you walk around with an understanding that I need grace. Say this with me. Say, I need grace. grace. Y'all sound good. When we understand that we need grace, what we're saying is that now I can deal with verse 1. And so today, we're going to jump into verse 1, and this particular verse is probably the most well-known scripture ever to be known to man, even for those people that are not in the church. This particular verse, if you catch somebody on the street, they haven't had to go to church, they may not read their Bible, but they will know this verse. And I'm not talking about John 3.16, for God so loved the world. I'm not even talking about the two-word verse, Jesus wept. I want to read this verse, and when I read it, you're going to be like, yeah, we all know that one. Let's go. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. It says, do not judge. Now, you know you've heard this particular scripture. People may not know where to find it, but they love it. Because they're like, okay, now you're speaking my language. But the challenge that I want to bring to us today and what we're going to kind of dig in today is that in the world we live in, We live in a world where everybody knows what Jesus said when he said don't judge, but nobody knows what Jesus really meant when he said don't judge. And we're going to gain an understanding today of what he meant when he said do not judge. And so you, like me, know that in a world that we live in that's very tolerant and that's very accepting, when people say don't judge, what they're generally saying is that you're just supposed to accept everybody the way they are. We're saying that all beliefs are right. We're saying that all paths lead to heaven. See, this past week, I just heard a very prominent artist accept an award, and and he was giving God praise, but then he took a little turn, and he said, well, you know, we just need to know it's all about love. We just need to know that we need to thank God. No matter what religion you are, you just need to know there's a higher power. Now, I believe there's a higher power, but I believe there's one path to the Father. His name is Jesus. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and so we need to make sure that we get that very clear. But that is an undercurrent of the thing that we're walking in. It's actually a symptom of the bigger problem that we see in society. And so what we want to navigate today is that when Jesus said, do not judge, he never meant do not make a judgment. I'm going to kind of walk through this very intentionally today because I need us to get this. I've been praying into this message. I've been really just digging into it because I know that I'm contending with the spirit of the age. But when he said don't judge, he never meant don't make a judgment. Watch this. In in a moment, we're going to read it, but Jesus says, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. And then he takes a shift and he says, oh, by the way, be careful of those pigs and dogs. Now, we're going to deal with that next week, but today I need us to hear this because as we look at this, and I want you to hear the meaning of the words. It's important for us to really know what words mean because a lot of times what we do is unintentionally We take on what the world's culture has put on a word instead of what the Bible originally intended for the word to be in this particular context. 
And so I want to give you two definitions real quick. It's in your version Bible notes, and it's going to be on the screen. But the word judge is krino in Greek. Krino in Greek. It means to condemn. As a matter of fact, it means to condemn someone to damnation, to form an opinion or conclusion about someone, meaning it is final. It is done. There's no coming back from it. But when we look at the word judgment, it's defined as the ability to judge, but to make a decision or form an opinion, watch this, objectively, authoritatively, and wisely. Say this with me. Say judgment is to form an opinion, objectively, authoritatively, and wisely. The definition says, especially in the matters affecting action. And so this is so important for us to have this distinction because if we don't, we will miss it that in the few verses later, Jesus says, don't don't judge, but then he says, be aware of false prophets. Now, there's no way you can be aware of false prophets if you're not able to exercise judgment and discernment. And so what Jesus is saying, he's never saying do not operate in judgment. He's saying don't not form an opinion objectively. Don't not discern. Don't not look at things for what they are based on the fruit of a thing. But he's saying do not judge. And I need us to hear this. Because if we're not careful, what we'll do if we just say all beliefs are okay, everything is okay, we will sit back, and when a white supremacist shoots up a mall or a grocery store, we'll say, it's okay. All beliefs are all right. Don't judge. Everybody's beliefs are good. We have to be those who see that and then call evil, evil. But in the same way, when we see black-on-black crime, when we see brown-on-brown crime, we have to be able to call that evil out. Can I get the same amen? We need to be able to say that is evil and we won't stand for it. The same way that when we see genocide happening, when we see babies being murdered in the womb, we have to be able to call it evil. And so God, through Jesus, is calling us to have judgment that would actually call a standard to bear. Now, this is something I need to say. The world will say, don't judge. But you know, like me, the world will cancel you in a minute. The world wants grace, but in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, you can be canceled for saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And so what we really need to know is that generally when people say don't judge, here it is, it's in your notes, they're really saying don't judge me. When people say don't judge, they're really saying give me grace, but don't judge me. But the unfortunate thing that happens is oftentimes many people are completely okay with judgment as long as somebody else is the defendant. Many times we're okay with judging as long as you're not coming after my neck. And so what we do many times is we stand as judge, jury, and executioner. We take the posture of a judge, and what we do is we (laughs) smack the gavel when it comes to somebody else's political idea. When we look at them and say, how can you actually be a supporter of that party? Don't you know what they stand for? Don't you know what they do? Don't you know what they propagate? We're smacking the gavel saying, you are one that does not understand. What we do is we stand as a judge and we smack the gavel when it comes to immigration. And we're saying, oh, they need to go back to where they came from. They're taking jobs. They're doing this thing. They're here illegal. We smack the gavel. And we look at our coworkers that when we show up on time and you see them strolling in and they get the promotion, you're judging them. We smack the gavel 
to our spouse. We may not say it out loud, but internally, we're smiling in their face, but we're judging them internally. And what we have to do is we have to make sure that we are not people who are going to judge and condemn and take this posture as God, giving people a judgment that we are not called to give. What we do have to do is we have to make sure that we are not judging people internally, walking around here acting like everything's okay. And some of the judgment that we do, we do it so subtly that you probably don't even know you're doing it. Let me give you some examples. When you see that woman do that thing, you say, she crazy. Or you see that guy operating a certain behavior and say, he's always doing that, man. He's always taking advantage of this. He's always doing this. Or we look at people and say, you voting for who for president? Surely you can't be with me. Or we'll judge by saying, what do you mean you don't support Black Lives Matter? You need to turn in your black card. And I'm not talking about an American Express. <laughs> what we do is we'll say, how could you not support her body, her choice? Whatever your commentary is, what we do is we insert our judgments by looking at people and taking a snapshot assessment. And we judge and we condemn others and we smack the gavel moment by moment while still wanting grace ourselves. And here's a secret to something that we navigate through. And I need you to write this down because it's not in your notes. What we do is that we judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. Let me say that one more time. We judge quickly. We judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. What do we say? God knows my heart. We'll say, I didn't really mean to hurt them. But how many of you know just because you didn't mean it doesn't mean it didn't happen? But what we want in those situations, we want people to see us as gracious. We want us to see us as those who forget the sin seven times seven, but we look at them one time and we call judgment on them. And so many times what we do is we will quote what Jesus says, but we won't do what he said do. We will conveniently contextualize what judgment means for our own good while looking over what the scriptures are really saying. So listen to this. I need you to say this. Say context is everything. Come on, say it with your chest. Say context is everything. So let's read what Jesus is saying in context. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, I mean chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Starts off at verse 1, Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take a speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Let's jump to verse 12. So in everything, do unto uh, to others what you will have them do unto you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. So if you're paying attention and we read that, again, context is everything. If you're paying attention, you notice that Jesus does not just say, don't judge and just give a hard stop. He says, don't judge, because if you do, you will be judged too. Let me bring it into modern day vernacular. What he's actually saying is, if you want that smoke, you can give that smoke. 
But if you don't want that smoke, you need to have a little bit more grace for them on this side. And many times, again, what we do, we are quick to point out something to somebody else, but we are quicker to ask for grace on our side. And so we take responsibility, especially here at Victory, and I want to teach something for a minute and kind of share something with you that was an account of something that is very real in our church. Here at Victory, what we're saying is that we want to take account to be Christians that call good good and call evil evil. We want to be people who don't skirt around the issues that really need to be dealt with. As a matter of fact, this particular account that I want to just share with you is a story just a few years ago about uh, an affair that happened in one of our Victory campuses. And in this particular account, this man who was having an active affair wanted to bring the woman he was having an affair with to church, sit on the front row, raise his hands and praise God like nothing happened. And what happened, because we are a church that believes in holding the standard, we said, we will not let you dare come into the house and now rub your wife's face in this and actually say, oh, now I'm going to do this and nobody's going to do anything about it. What we did is in that moment, had a meeting with him, asked him, pleaded with him to repent, to change his ways, to understand what was actually happening. And he said no. And so you know what we did? Removed him expeditiously from the church. Now, as soon as I just said that, some of you just grabbed your pearls and was like, got offended. It's like, Jesus would never. But let me tell you something. If you read your Bible, Jesus is about discipline in the church. If you read your Bible, God tells us to make sure that we have order in the church. Now, some of you, again, are like, well, well why didn't y'all love him through it? Let me give you a little major key. The lovingest thing that you can do in a moment when someone is unrepentant is to tell them to get about their business. Because as we gave him an opportunity to repent, he was stalemating in the situation saying, I don't want to do it. So he was hard hearted. And so when we read our Bible, and I want to show you a scripture in a minute, it gives us context for how we're going to walk in it. I'm going to unpack some things because I see how you're looking at me in that tone of voice. 1 Corinthians chapter, nine, chapter 5, verse 9. The Apostle Paul said this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world. Let me pause right there. He's making a differentiation right there of who he's talking to. He's talking about people who did not actually receive Christ. He said, I'm not talking about them. He goes on and he says, who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Follow me. He says, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Watch this. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God, somebody say God, God would judge those outside, but expel the wicked person from among you. Now, let your shoulders down for a second. Listen to this. Next week, we're going to be talking about how to interact with those outside the church, those who haven't received Jesus, those who have not confessed him as Lord. But today, we're dealing with how do we, how do we interact with other Christians, those who say they've received Jesus, those who say they're Christians, those who say they have believed that Jesus died for their sins and they're walking that out. Because 
The reason why we have to look at this is because if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll pacify ourselves while there's a cesspool going on in the congregation. And as I even get back to that story of actually getting that man removed from the church, we had to do that because we had to show accountability. Here's the thing. When we know about something, we're going to meet with you. We're going to get with you. We're going to talk with you and give you an opportunity to fix that thing. But at the same time, if we had not done that, what we're telling his wife was that we don't care about you. What we're telling the church is that sin can just live rampant in here blatantly, and we know about it. What we're saying is that we don't care about the victim, and somebody can just come in here and take advantage of the flock. And so what I need us to know right here is that in our leadership, we are making sure that we are protecting you. Because we've also put people out of the church for sowing strife, for threatening people, for sleeping around with multiple people in the congregation trying to cause division. And some of you are like, well, why, why, are, you, why are you so intense about this? You should just stand at the door and smile. You should just preach nice messages and kiss babies. But let me let you know something. Yes, that's part of my job. But the other major part of my job is to protect the sheep. It's to protect you from wolves. Because I believe that if someone feels like they can come in here and take advantage of you, they will. Anytime you see a large group of people, people are happy about it, but there's also some people looking with a sinister idea. And so I just want to say right here in the spirit, I want to put some spirits on notice. I'm not even talking to people. If you're in here and you are operating as a wolf in sheep's clothing, I declare right now in the name of Jesus that you be expelled from this place. As a matter of fact, ushers, I need you to open the doors real quick. Somebody at the back, open the door right there for me. Open up the door. I say, spirit of lust, get on out. Spirit of contention, get on out. Spirit of witchcraft, get on out. Spirit of manipulation, get on out. Spirit of abuse, get on out. Emotionally, physically, ideally. We say right now in the name of Jesus, we are those who operate in the standard of Christ. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord lift up the standard. Say in Jesus' name, amen. It's my job. See, a pastor is a shepherd. And one of the shepherd's accessories is a staff. And that staff is not just for him to lean on and be cool. The staff sometimes was used to hit a wolf in the mouth. The staff sometimes was used to pull sheep back that were straying away. The staff sometimes was to guide us around some things that if you did not know it, you would fall into a pit. And I take it seriously. Kendra takes it seriously for us being shepherds of this house. And so it's our job to judge these things. And here's what I want us to know. This is my prayer for you. As I've been praying over this message this weekend, I was really thinking about this intentionally. We've got to be a people who get back to seeking holiness and integrity again in the church. We have to be a people who start to take seriously the severity of sin that's being rampant in the church. We have to be a people who rediscover again, watch this, the fear of the Lord and stop just kind of looking over things and acting like it's okay. We have to be a people who grow again in the spirit of Christ-likeness. And what I'm praying right here for Victory Midtown, even for those who are worshiping online with us, is that we would awake from our slumber today. I believe that we need to be a people who bring accountability back to the church again. Put that on the hat. And so as we are navigating through this, we need to understand what Jesus is saying. 
What I'm saying is as we bring accountability back into the church, we need to do it the right way. Somebody say the right way. And here in Matthew 7, Jesus is telling us how to begin doing this. In Matthew 7, verse 5, he says, first, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I need us to see this very clearly. Again, I'm unpacking this because if you first hear this, you're kind of like, the church is supposed to be loving. I lift my hands in the sanctuary. But God is saying right here, he used these words very intentionally. He said, number one, remove the speck. Number two, he said, whose speck? He was talking about your brother. That's a major key. Because every time you see the word brother use, Jesus is talking about not skin folk. He's talking about kinfolk. But he's talking about kinfolk in the spirit, the family of God, those who all profess the name of Jesus. Y'all following me? And so when he says my brother, he is saying those who have accepted Jesus. What Jesus is saying, write this simple statement down. He's saying, help other Christians get the sin speck out of their eye. Help your brother and sister get the sin speck out of your eye. Why? So that they can pursue Christ more. So that they can look more like Christ and less like the world. But the challenge that I really understand is that many of us, as we hear a message like this, we stand at one or two extremes. One extreme is we say, I couldn't dare say anything to anybody else because my whole life is a mess. And so what we do is we clam up and we don't stand in that authority of what God told us. But the other extreme for some of us in the church is that we think we're the sin police. We think we've been deputized to be a sheriff of criticism. And that's not what we're saying. So let me just dispel that for some of y'all that were getting ready to start pointing stuff out after this service let out. Close your mouth. But here's the thing. If we're honest, we won't say this, but many of us, we think we're perfect. And so what happens is that we have an uneven scale of what's happening. But I need to say this very, very clearly. There is no thing in the Bible that's called a spirit of criticism. There's no license to have a spirit of criticism where you're looking around trying to call somebody out. So we have to measure this with balance. And so remember that word crino. When we talk about being judged or judging, we need to make sure that we're not people who are, again, operating in this gavel and giving final judgment. What is final judgment? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. It's when you see that person, they've done that one thing, and you identify them as that thing. Let me make it even more real. They've done that thing a few times. And now when you see them, you now associate them with this negative behavior. So you stay away from them. You disassociate with them. You don't want to call them out. You just avoid them. But here's the key that I need us to think about. How many times have we done something that we want somebody to give us grace for? How many times have we maybe in a point of weakness or just a point of bad judgment, have we operated in a behavior that we don't want people to hold us to that forever? And the reason why I'm kind of harping on this is because what we'll do is that we want people to give us room to grow and evolve. But many times we don't give people that opportunity to grow and evolve. And so we don't need to have final judgment because when we have final judgment, that's when we are judging wrongly and we're condemning and we're taking the place of God. Amen? Here it is. As we look at not taking this gavel and this stance of being a judge. What we need to do is we need to do what Jesus says. He says in chapter 7, verse 24, he says, do not judge according to appearance, 
Don't judge just according to a snapshot of what you see, judging them by their race, judging them by their class, judging them by what you think about them. He says, but judge with righteous judgment. Write that term down, righteous judgment. What is righteous judgment? Righteous judgment is when we lovingly call one another out of sin and up towards Christ-likeness. One more time. Righteous judgment is when we do what? Lovingly call one another out of sin and up towards Christ's likeness. But how do we do this? The first way that we do this is that we have to be intentional about taking the plank out of our own eye. We have to be very intentional because Jesus does want us to help get the splinters out of other people's eye. But there's a prerequisite to being able to do that. Just like flying, if you ever have taken a flight, you hear them say, before it's time for the emergency briefing, they say, in case of emergency, do what? Put on your mask first before you help somebody else. It's the same way here that we have to be those who first take the plank out of our eyes. Let me read it from the Amplified Version, Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. It says this, why do you look at the insignificant speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice and acknowledge the egregious log that is in your own eye. Or how do you say to your brother, let me get the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your eye? You hypocrite. First get the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What Jesus is doing right here, he's drawing a comparison. He's drawing a comparison by this smaller thing here to this bigger thing here. But let me make it very clear. Both of these can take you out in your eye. This is a speck, but I'll tell you, I was on the golf course recently and a fly flew in my eye and I thought I was going to die. <laughs> so when we're talking about this right here, we need to understand that this speck is just as detrimental. But he's drawing a comparison here because often what we do is that we feel we're perfect and we walk around many times with magnifying glasses instead of walking around with mirrors. We walk around magnifying the things that somebody else is doing. Let me see how they're operating. Let me see what they're doing. But we don't look in the mirror and actually see how we need to adjust ourselves. And so the way we do this many times, we'll say things like, hey, hey, I can't believe you're pro-choice. You don't care about children. You don't care about babies. But at the same time, you're walking around here on your third marriage. You don't see your own kids. You know, you, you don't send them any child support. You're not doing anything. Even simpler, we'll say things like, you know, I, I notice when you're in church, you don't lift your hands when we're singing worship songs. First of all, mind your business. <laughs> mind your business. Just mind your business, that's all. But second of all, you're walking around. I just heard you cuss your kids out when you were walking in. <laughs> you're, you're trying to get them to victory kids, and you are cussing them out, trying to rattle them up. And then you walk in with somebody say, blessed and highly favored. <laughs> See, what I'm saying is that we wonder why people don't listen to us. Because we operate hypocritically. One of my pet peeves, and y'all have heard me talk about it before, it's like you go to the gym or you're in the gym and you see that fat trainer trying to push everybody to do something that they're not willing to do. You're looking at them and you should be saying, surely you're not taking your own med medicine and advice. <laughs> now some of y'all are like, man, you're kind of out there today. <laughs> but listen to what I'm saying. It would be different, listen, 
It would be different if the trainer was humble and he's saying, you know what? I actually blew out my knee. I couldn't work out anymore. I actually went to school for this, but I'm trying to get myself together. I'm walking in humility. I'm walking with grace, and I'm going to do this and take this journey with you. But not the one that's on there on their phone over there and telling you to do 10 more reps. Why? Because that's a picture of how we operate in a very hypocritical manner. And God is saying, take the plank out of your eye before you're trying to look with a microscopic view of what somebody else has going on. Because what we'll do, we will stay in a point of uh, being a hypocrite. And what we need to know is that we hurt more people when we don't deal with ourselves first and we try to help them. Because we'll walk around acting like we're holier than thou, and now people are in the line of fire. And you'll say, okay, I want to help you. You hit them in the head. You say, oh, you don't read your Bible enough. You hit them in the head, and now they're not coming back to church anymore. You're moving around doing things, being God, and God never calls you to be God. Instead of operating in what I said already, radical humility, where you understand that I'm just one decision away from falling just like they fell. So I want to take time to allow God to interrogate me. And so here's something that's very serious. This is a very active thing that we need to pay attention to because as we talk about this plank in our eye, let me pick it up one more time. If you're married in here and you are like, okay, my my spouse has this splinter in their eye, where do you think they got it from? If you're always complaining to your bros and and insist about what he or she is not doing and you have not looked that you have this big plank in your eye, I would venture to say if you interrogate yourself, there's some things you can change. If you're a parent in here and your children's default mode of operation is all they do is yell, they're turning up everywhere, think about how you have your conversations. They got that splinter from you and what we do is we want to punish people for something that came from us. And I got news for you, if you didn't know it, you cannot spank or whoop your kids and actually try to whoop yourself out of your kids. But what you can do is you can repent to your kids. You can show yourself a a soft heart turning to the Lord and actually apologize so they understand that you can walk in humility and that's the way to go. Amen? Here it is. What if we let God's word be a mirror to us? instead of first trying to apply everything to somebody else. As we repent, we have to humble ourselves and look in the mirror, then do the second thing, which is correct our brothers and sisters. Watch this key word, in love. Correct our brothers and sisters in love. See, some of y'all got real excited when I said correct your brother and sister, but when I said love, he's like, ah, that's New Testament. No, correct our brothers and sisters in love. Here's what I really believe. The church needs more people who will actually stand with each other and hold each other accountable. What do I mean by the word accountable? I mean you're going to love someone enough to call them up to the standard that they said they want to walk in. You love them enough not to embarrass them, not to put them on blast, but to say, hey, you said you want to get better with your marriage, right? You said you want to get better with your finances. You said you wanted to stop looking at porn at 12.59 a.m. You said it. So I'm going to love you enough to tell you don't operate in that behavior anymore. Don't put yourself in that particular situation. 
I love how James talks about it in chapter 5, verse 19. He says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring back that person, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sin. Can I ask you this question? Do you love who you call your bro or your sis enough to tell them the truth? Or do you say, ah, that's not my business, while they're walking off a cliff to to hell? We have to be people who love each other enough to help them in the way, watch this, that they need to be helped. What do I mean by that? Jude 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy. Listen to this ingredient, mixed with fear. Hating even the clothing stained by a corrupted flesh. Here's what I need us to know. We need to approach all these situations. See, sometimes somebody needs you to snatch them up. There's some of us, you know yourself in here, you're a little stubborn. And you need someone to tell you the truth and not play around with you. But for others, we need to show real mercy. We need to be very tender. We need to make sure that we approach them and and get them in a position where they can hear you. And so the common denominator, write this word down. I've said it a few times already. The common denominator for us operating and being able to save our brother and sister is our approach has to be mixed with humility. Mixed with humility. Again, saying, I recognize that I could be lost too, that God saved me. And so what we have to do is we have to remember that we cannot forget the good gift of grace that has been given to us. I love how Charles Spurgeon says it. He said it like this. While others are congratulating themselves, I have to sit humbly at the foot of the cross and marvel that I'm even saved at all. Some of us in here, you know, as we talk about different things, you could actually give a testimony right now and say, you don't even know what it means for me to be sitting in church on Sunday right here at an 11 o'clock service. If I look back over your life and saw certain things, we would be like, it is a miracle that you just even showed up today. But what we do is we forget that. Because when I'm sober, I remember that I should be dead. I should be dead physically and spiritually. And so I thank God that he had enough grace on my life to send his son Jesus to save me spiritually, but also save my life from some stupid mistakes that I've made. Body Botcham says it like this. It was God's mercy that woke you up this morning because his judgment should have killed you last night. If that is not the truth, we need to understand that God wants us to remember that we received mercy. Can I just get somebody to put their hand up in the air right now and thank God for his mercy, to thank God for his grace? Come on, if God hasn't given you any mercy, you can keep your hand down. But he has given you some mercy. You just need to say, thank you, Jesus. You need to say, Lord, I love you. Come on. This is just an unexpected praise break in the middle of the message to thank you, God, for his mercy, for his grace, for his loving kindness, for not doing to me what I deserve, but giving me the good gift of grace. Somebody say amen. So it's from this place that when we approach our brother and sister that we're able to be in humility. Because what we need to know is that it takes a delicate approach to help correct our brother and sister. As we were talking about this message this week, we were kind of recounting a story from a common friend that all of us has. And he told us that there was a time where he actually got a splinter in his eye. And he started to tell us what happened. And what he said, he said, first of all, the doctor took me into a private place. 
He got with me and comforted me. He washed his hands. That's important. He started to talk to me about what he was getting ready to do. He gave me a numbing medication so that I wouldn't feel every single thing at face value. And then he did this. He gently removed the tweezers. He gently took those tweezers and started to take that splinter out. Watch this. He was delicate and intentional. And this is a parallel for how we're to operate with our brother and sister. When possible, take them in private. When possible, don't put them on blast. When possible, tell them how God has washed you and forgiven you from the things you walked in and you used to be in the same position. Let them see your eyes being clear that they understand that I've first taken this to the Lord and I've removed the plank out of my eye before I'm telling you about the splinter in yours. Because what we need to do is we need people to know that I'm here for you. I'm here to call you up to Christ's likeness. And here's a major key. We need to be prepared to walk with them on their journey of coming up into Christ's likeness. That's real love. And the reason I say that is because many times we are real quick to point out something in somebody's life, but not willing to provide the opportunity to walk with them. What, I'm, what am I saying? Don't point out the fact that they, you know, got something going on when they tell you that I'm struggling with porn, I'm struggling with addiction, I'm struggling with this. And then when they call you at 2 a.m., you put D&D. If you're going to call it out, be willing to walk with them. If you're going to call it out, be willing to resource them and wrap them around in the community of believers. Which leads me to the last thing that I want to share today. Here it is. This might be the most critical one out of all of them. We need to be those who welcome correction from our brothers and sisters. I see some heads. Y'all like, I was with you until you said that one, bro. We need to welcome correction from our brothers and sisters. Again, Jesus says, do unto others as you will have them do unto you. And here's a newsflash, if you didn't know it, correction is not a one-way street. Correction is something that as we give it, we have to be able to receive it as well. Here's the thing. If you're the only one giving out correction all the time and you're never receiving it, warning, you might be a hypocrite. If you're the only one always telling someone else about what they have going on and how they need to get better, warning, you might be a hypocrite. And so what we have to do is we have to be a people who start to open ourselves up and give opportunities for people to speak into us. How do I do that? One of the ways, you know, I shared with the 9 o'clock service that, that recently uh, there was something that happened that I used to deal with. I'm talking about recently yesterday. I was dealing with this. My wife actually said something. That I had to humble myself because I had to understand that maybe I didn't see it like she saw it, but she was right. I had to open myself up to say, babe, I'm sorry I didn't receive that the right way. Babe, I'm sorry I wasn't giving you my attention, but what you're saying is right. I couldn't sit there and say, well, you should have known I was busy. You shouldn't have brought that to me at this moment. No, I had to open myself up for correction. How I do that even with authorities in my life, Pastor Johnson being one of them. We're about the same age, but every time we meet for our accountability one-on-ones, I ask him intentionally without leaving that room, I say, is there anything that I can do to be better? Is there anything in my life that is taking away from me looking like Christ? Is there anything that you can share with me where I can grow to look more like Jesus as I walk around this earth? And if we're not willing to do that, we'll find ourselves operating in a hypocritical spirit. Because here's the thing. 
If I walk around and act like nothing's wrong, I will hurt more people than I help. And this is a very important thing that I want to say as I close this message. I want to say this very clearly, so I need you to hear me. The issue is not that Christians sin. Grace is for that. Yes, you might fall short and do these things. The issue is not that Christians sin. The issue is when a Christian says, I want to live how I want to live. I'm going to live totally adverse to what the word of God says. I want to reject Christ and his standard. I want to reject correction in my life. I want to judge other Christians, and I still want to call myself a Christian. That's not true Christianity. It doesn't work like that. Nothing about that posture says I'm a Christian. And so again, ultimately, God knows. But scripture would say this hints at us being in a dangerous place. Hear this. A Christian is defined as being a Christ follower. In fact, if one of the, one of the best things that can happen in this particular service is if through this message you start to hear and you receive and you understand it's like, you know, I'm actually not a Christian because I haven't walked in the things of Christ. Being a Christian is not just about that prayer that one time that I said over there. When we say confess him with our mouths and believe in our heart, when you believe something in your heart, it starts to change you. It starts to regulate you. And so once you realize that you have not been operating in Christ, today becomes the day of salvation. Where you're able to say clearly, I need to open myself up, cast my cares on him, be open to correction, and let God be the Lord of my life. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray over us. Because many of us, as I'm talking, we've made it hard for people to talk to us. We've made it hard for people to correct us. And ultimately, we have not necessarily been operating in the ways of God. Proverbs 12 and 1 says this. Is the last scripture I want to give you. This is very important. It says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But whoever hates, whoever hates correction is stupid. Now, if I was to go around here and put a mic in front of your mouth and ask you, are you stupid? Many of you would say no. But how many of you know it's not about what you say? It's about what we do. And so the world would say, do whatever you want, live how you want. Nobody can judge me. If you're walking around with the motto, only God can judge me, again, that's a dangerous place. And so I want to pray for you. Can you bow your heads for a moment? As you bow your head, I want to say this. If you have claimed Christ's name, but you've never claimed his life, you're not really a follower of Jesus. And so with your head bowed right now, as I've prayed over this message this week and this weekend, my assignment here is to give you an opportunity to truly surrender to God from the bottom of your heart, to give him the fullness of who you are. And some of us today, as you've been listening to this message, you realize that I have not been operating as a Christ follower. And so if you're in here today and you want to really make Jesus the true Lord of your life, where your words meet your action, that you're depending on his grace, just lift your hand right, right quick while every head is bowed. I see a lot of hands going up. I see your hands. I want to pray for you all over the room. Pray this prayer with me. Say, Jesus, come on, say it strong. Say, Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Today, I repent, which means I turn away from my way of doing things. 
from my idea of life and I turn towards your way of life. Today I confess you as my Lord and I confess you as my Savior. And I believe in my heart and I know that I now am a child of God. I will live forever in eternity and I will also walk by your power in this earth. It's in Jesus' name that I'm saved. Father, I cover this congregation right now. I thank you that many of us are having to make a decision right now in an interrogative moment to ask, how have I navigated this life of being a Christian? Father, we don't want to be people who judge wrongly. Let us be people who first take the plank out of our own eyes. Let us be people who, with love, correct our brothers and sisters, calling them up to Christ's standard. And let us be people who are open and willing to be corrected ourselves. Today, God, we yield to you and we say we surrender in Jesus' name. The way I want to close this service is this message hit different people in different ways. And what I want to do is I want to take a moment because the worship team is going to lead us in this simple song that says, I surrender. And if you're in here, you may need to bow at your seat. You may need to raise your hands. But some of us need to come to the altar, even as a place of exchange of saying, I've been operating in a certain way. But as I come down to the altar, this represents a sacrifice of me leaving the old man, the old woman, and now saying, God, I'm going to totally submit to you. And so just for a few moments as we close this service, we're going to give our all to God. And this is a self-reflective moment just to see where do I stand with this as we surrender to the Lord. Let's worship God. Father, we worship.